If the internet was completely reimagined with the software and hardware infrastructure that we have today, what would it look like? That is the question that Definity is working on answering. Definity's goal is to build a decentralized, secure internet computer. Definity takes concepts from the cryptocurrency world, but it's focused on computation, not financial products. Definity can be thought of as a decentralized cloud provider with redundancy and scalability properties that are achieved by operating on data centers across the world. Definity wants to host web applications such as the ones that we use today on centralized servers. A developer who wants to run their application on Definity compiles their code to WebAssembly and deploys it to the Definity centralized runtime. Transactions across Definity applications are processed through a collateralized proof-of-stake system to ensure reliable, decentralized computation. Definity is an ambitious project, and it would seem nearly impossible to bring to market if not for the quality of the team. Definity has hired Andreas Rosberg, one of the co-creators of WebAssembly, and the company has also hired many talented engineers across security, web development, and back-end infrastructure. For people who have completely turned away from anything related to a blockchain or running gas or decentralized computation, this is a show to listen to. It's definitely a departure from completely traditional web infrastructure. It definitely has a component of the broad ambition of the crypto community, but it is a nice merger between the practical normality of centralized computing and the ambitions of decentralized computing. And it has a real strong software team. Dominic Williams is the president of Definity and the chief scientist, and he joins the show to talk about the vision for Definity and the roadmap to making it a reality. We have partnered with SafeGraph for the SafeGraph Data Hackathon Challenge, we're giving away $4,000 in cash prizes, as well as SE Daily and SafeGraph swag. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company, which curates a data set of more than 6 million points of interest. And SafeGraph provides a high volume of location data. You can use SafeGraph to build apps and data science projects with that data. And if you've been looking for a creative opportunity to explore large data sets, to try out data science, you have the potential to win $4,000 in cash prizes and have a lot of fun. This is a great opportunity to try out data science. The hackathon is hosted on Find Collabs, and you can enter the contest by going to findcollabs.com and signing up. If you're planning a hackathon yourself, you can check out Find Collabs hackathons. Find Collabs is a company I built, and our new hackathon product allows anybody to create a hackathon and manage it and run it and award prizes and create rules. So if you're planning a hackathon, check out findcollabs.com. Redis is a fast, in-memory database system. Engineers have been using Redis for more than a decade because of its reliable object caching. But that's not the only use case of Redis. Redis can be used as your operational data store for queuing, streaming, and other data applications. We recently had an episode of Software Engineering Daily with Alvin Richards of Redis Labs, in which Alvin described the use cases of Redis, and I enjoyed learning about the flexible architecture and how Redis uses memory and persistence to create an API that solves a variety of problems. You can listen to that episode, or you can go to redislabs.com slash sedaily 
to find out about how Redis can help as a data layer for your microservices. Redis Labs is the company that makes Redis Enterprise, which offers performance, reliability, and professional assistance with your Redis instances. If Redis is on the critical path of your application, go to redislabs.com slash sedaily and learn about Redis Labs, as well as some of the design patterns for Redis that you might not have seen before. That's redislabs.com slash sedaily. Thank you to Redis Labs for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Dom Williams, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You're building Definity. The goal of Definity is to build a decentralized, secure internet computer. Explain why that would be useful. Well, Definity is a foundation, and it's not building Definity. It's building something we call the the internet computer. We don't think there'll be lots of internet computers. There'll be one internet computer. And it's created by a protocol that combines compute capacity from independent data centers to create a compute platform that reimagines how we build software systems and internet services. What are some applications that we could build with an internet computer that we cannot build today? Well, the internet computer will enable you to build enterprise systems, internet services, websites. So you know, a very broad range of systems. And it's intended as a complete replacement for today's legacy stack. So it reimagines how software works. You don't need databases, web servers, middleware, cloud services, content distribution networks, DNS. You can essentially write code and just push it onto the internet where it'll run and be hosted within the protocol. And you can even serve user experiences directly from the internet computer into web browsers. What are the shortcomings of the current status quo internet relative to the internet computer? Well, today's internet only provides connectivity. So, you know, the, the network itself is formed by a protocol called IP, which combines thousands of private networks around the world, um, anything from, you know, an ISP's network to a corporate network to a sort of transit provider's route um, into a single global public virtual network. Okay, but it only does connectivity, and then there are you know high-level protocols like HTTP that connect hypertext web pages, for example. But if you want to build a system or an internet service, you need components of the sort of legacy stack. So, for example, let's say you wanted to create a website, probably you'll get uh, an Amazon Web Services instance. You'll choose a database. You'll choose uh, well, obviously, an operating system a web server, a scripting language, and so on and so forth. And you'll assemble your system from all these different components. And there are problems with that. I mean, first of all, you know, the vendors of all these different components want to make you a captive customer. Second of all, it's impossible to make a secure system. It relies on constant patching of software, a correct configuration of a firewall, and so on. And we all know about the dangers, you know, you, someone can hack your system, encrypt your server uh, with ransomware, steal your confidential data. And also it's very expensive. Um, you know, it's if, if you look at the breakdown of costs, the majority of IT operations, i.e. people, and if you really analyze what people spend the majority of their time doing, especially in enterprise software, it involves managing complexity trying to integrate different systems and resolving integration bugs and so on. And we attack that 
And finally, we also address some of the difficulties in, involved in creating internet services today. We live in a very monopolistic ecosystem and we want to change how internet services are built. How does your perspective on what an internet computer should be compare to, let's say, the Web3 visions that were described in detail over the last couple of years by various people, maybe, you know, people who are writing about combining Ethereum with IPFS, like that kind of stack? And and why does your, how would you contrast the architecture of Defin- the Definity stack? Well, so the internet computer involves a lot more computer science than something like Ethereum, right? Ethereum is essentially um, a scripting language overlaid on a proof-of-work blockchain. I'm not even sure you can describe the internet computer as a blockchain. Um, it provides the you know, software running on the internet computer gets the same security guarantees as smart contracts, but, you know, it designed to compete with the mainstream stack. So, you know, it has unlimited computational and storage capacity. It can serve requests extraordinarily quickly. So you can't really compare it to sort of these blockchain systems. You know, the the, the security properties are the same, but the way it works is very different. So the most primitive description for a computer is like the Turing machine, basically. And the Turing machine model for a computer is just very simple. You could arguably build a Turing complete system on top of Bitcoin scripting language, on top of Ethereum scripting language. You would have to have layers and layers of abstraction, you know, in the case of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin has this time-bound property where the the scripts will run out of time eventually. You can, you know they can they can't execute forever. You know in the case of Ethereum, you just have they're just so slow. I mean they're both very very slow. But you could build you know whatever side chains or Lightning Network like stuff on top of it to eventually get to a Turing complete computer. And then it seems conceivable that you could build all of the consumer technologies on top of those. Turing complete levels of abstraction at some point. So I'm just trying to understand the. Dis- I don't. I have no idea how that would work. I mean, at least today, I'm not aware of any projects that you know have blockchains that host smart contracts that have good performance, that are infinitely scalable, that provide software engineering models that would allow them to compete against the legacy stack. So I think you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum exist in the cryptocurrency world, and they have their own set of objectives and criteria upon which they evaluate success. The internet computer isn't competing with Ethereum and Bitcoin. It's competing with the today's legacy stack. We want to provide people with a different way of building uh, software systems, enterprise software systems, um, internet services, the whole thing. So, I mean, it's true that the internet computer can be used to host smart contracts, but that's like a sort of tiny niche application. Um, what we care about is can you build open Salesforce on the internet computer? Um, can you build you know, video streaming, open Netflix? Can you build open WhatsApp? Can you build uh, open LinkedIn? Can you build a messaging, you know, like a replacement for something like, something like Gmail? And can you build enterprise systems? You know, can a large 
Fortune 500 company trust it to build its inventory management system. And we're not suggesting that people use the internet computer as some kind of smart contract or logging platform or something like that. We're suggesting that people completely throw away everything. You know, it's an alternative system. It's not designed to particularly work with them. You can integrate it with the existing stack, but it's designed as a a replacement for the existing stack. Right. And the replacement, is it... I just really want to highlight like the higher level before we dive into the, the, the lower level guts. The replacement, like if you compare it to the contemporary stack, it's the idea that it's decentralized, it's transparent in its execution, it's transparent in its code, it's it's fully transparent. Well, well look, I mean, the first, the word decentralized is very loaded. Okay, so I, I mean, our view is that people will choose to use the internet computer for much more concrete reasons. And broadly speaking, there are, I suppose there are four. One is that you're not a captive customer, you're building on the internet. Like building on the internet itself is very different to building on Amazon Web Services using Microsoft.net, an internet information server, and some database, where you're going to become a captive of those different platform stack components, right? So first of all, we want to enable corporations to build systems without becoming captive customers of all of these legacy stack vendors. Secondly, we want to solve the security problem. We think that the legacy stacks are meltdown. It's impossible to make systems secure. It relies upon, you know, people creating these kind of assemblies of systems, databases, web services, servers, middleware systems, firewalls, VPNs, and so on, and then correctly configuring them and constantly patching them. And sooner or later, you know, mistakes made and someone gets in. We think that it's impossible to build a secure system today. And we're sort of reversing the model so the systems are secure by default. You know, when you build an enterprise system on the internet computer, you don't have to protect it by a firewall and you don't have to patch the internet computer to keep it secure. It is secure by default. It's a tamper-proof environment. Um, It provides the same uh, security properties as smart contracts do, for example. So secondly, we're solving security problems of today, which we think are very pressing and only going to grow. Thirdly, we're addressing the cost of building and maintaining systems, which we think are exorbitantly high, owing to the way that systems are built today. And fourthly, we're providing a way to create a different kind of internet service that can compete with today's uh, monopolistic internet services, like, for example, LinkedIn, Salesforce, WhatsApp, Instagram, you name it. To get into the scalability model of Definity. I'd first like to dabble a little bit in the scalability architecture of Ethereum and a little bit about the the struggles in implementation details there. When you look at the scalability of Ethereum and the scalability bottlenecks of Ethereum, what do you think are the most acute problems and how viable do you think are Ethereum's scalability solutions? I mean, look, I, I was involved in playing around with, you know, blockchains probably, you know, five, five plus years ago. And it is true that Definity was originally conceived as a solution to some of the challenges that, that Ethereum faced, but it's become something very different. You can't draw analogies between the design of Ethereum and Bitcoin and the design of the internet computer protocol. So it's probably fair to say the internet computer protocol is you know, orders of magnitude more complex, leans on modern cryptography and a completely different architecture. And there, there is no 
direct parallel. You know, it's not, the internet computer is not just a faster blockchain. Can you give a brief overview of the Definity blockchain scalability model, and then we can go into more specifics about it? Well, Definity is just, first of all, Definity is a foundation, not-for-profit foundation based in Switzerland. And it has several research centers around the world that work on the Internet Computer Protocol and software implementations that data centers can run such that the Internet Computer comes into being. And, uh, you know, we probably got the strongest distributed computing and crypto team in the world, bar none, and not, I'm not comparing it to blockchain companies, I'm comparing it to, um, you know, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and IBM and so on. And the internet computer itself, you know, involves a lot of cryptography, a lot of distributed computing, a lot of virtual machine science. So, for example, the, the low-level instruction format we use is WebAssembly. The primary creator of WebAssembly, Andreas Rosberg, works at Definity. We also are developing new languages. So, the, for example, at the end of last year, November 1st, 2019, we released an SDK with a new language called Matoko. Um, there are other SDKs coming, a Rust SDK and a C SDK. So it's a pretty broad project that touches on many different areas. There are some components that we have talked about. We don't generally talk about the work of the last few years because whenever we release information, we find that we don't really get any credit for it, but everyone copies us, right? So, but some of the pieces that are, are talked about, like for example, threshold relay is a mechanism for creating uh, random numbers in a way that in a decentralized network that is unmanipulable, unmanipulable, unstoppable, and, and unpredictable. And we use those random numbers to drive um, various other protocols. And that's that's well known. The delegation um, selection. Uh, you, you know, it's we rely on threshold signatures, multi-signatures, all kinds of things. Um, there's a lot of cryptography. I have to know, we're like 20 of the world's best cryptographers on the team. So... Even one of the pieces of cryptography that we use will probably require quite a sort of substantial amount of explanation and sort of PhD level knowledge of crypto to really get a handle on. But all of this stuff, you know, before you know, we started releasing technology into the, the wild, you know, at the end of last year, we pushed out an SDK, which reveals various aspects of the programming model together with this language called Matoko. And we've got a, there's a, Number of releases uh, take us to the public launch of the network, hopefully later this year. And the SDK was a copper, copper release. Um, we've got a bronze release coming up, which demonstrates internet computer that's being incubated at the moment at some uh, data centers. And we're, we're actually going to also demonstrate an open internet service called Linked Up that's been built on top of it. We think that'll be a sort of another significant sort of milestone in terms of what we've pushed out into the public domain. And then following from that, there's a release called Tungsten, which will make the incubated internet computer or make access to the incubated internet computer more widely available. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. 
Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. One thing I'd, I'd really like to highlight is the fact that if you want to have distributed computation or decentralized computation in the way that cryptocurrency people typically talk about decentralized computation, you need to have some kind of breakthrough in scalability to, to have all of the transactions in, in the internet computer propagate. In a, in a decentralized fashion, right? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's you know, look, there are two things. First of all, there's a lot of, frankly speaking, crap talked in the cryptocurrency community. There's a lot of um, sort of phony engineers and scientists who don't really know what they're doing. And you, you just can't debate it with them because you end up going down all kinds of blind alleys and assume I'm your smartest blockchain engineer. And and the assume last, the, yeah, the, the last time I tried talking to someone in that space to explain some technical things. Um, I ended up and they said, I remember, remember they turned around to me and said, well, what about weak subjectivity? I said, what? What about weak subjectivity? And this was something, some theory of Vitalik's. I mean, we got the best scientists and engineers in the, the space on our team and all of the technical materials will be released in, in, in due course and people can make their own minds up about well, How I mean, the stuff that's already been published is impressive. Like the 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 delegation, the threshold concept. relay, and PSE. Yeah, well, and and just the concept of, I mean, maybe this was not novel, but I, I my impression is that it was novel. The del- the idea that when obviously every transaction needs to be processed by some number of of nodes, and the population of nodes are going to be chosen via this trusted delegate situation where the delegates all have to have some kind of skin in the game. They all have to have some, you know, there's a proof of, a proof yeah, of stake so, model. So, so, yeah, like, it's, so it's not, you know, the internet computer leans much more heavily to the internet, the internet model itself. So it's not proof of stake. 
you can't like take some cryptocurrency moniker and use it to explain the model that it had, that the, you know, the technical architecture and the, the, the model. There's elements of proof of stake though, right? I mean, people have a stake. If you have a stake in the system, you can get chosen as a delegate to approve a transaction. No, no, no. So, I mean, so generally, so generally there's, so first of all, the internet computer is created by data, independent data centers in the same way that uh, the internet is created by independent networks. And, you know, in the case of the internet, there's a protocol called IP that combines thousands of private networks worldwide to create a single global public network, a virtual network. In the case of the internet computer, there's a protocol called ICP that combines compute capacity provided by traditional independent data centers to create uh, this you know, global virtual computer, right? the internet computer, which is something like a, a seamless universe for software where you can upload software. There's no files. We have a thing called orthogonal persistence. And you know, if, if I upload some software and you upload some software, my software can call into your software if you've given me permission. It's seamless. There's no concept of distribution. And so, you know, in the same way, the internet's created by protocol called IP that combines private networks to create a global public virtual network. The internet computer is created by a protocol called ICP that combines compute capacity from data centers to create a single global public virtual computer, the internet computer. Within that network, that internet computer acts more like a cloud in the sense that, you know, it's designed to store unimaginable amounts of data and process, you know, trillions of transactions a second. So there's no way that, you know, an individual could possibly, you know, install some client and get a copy of all that, all those transactions and all that data in the manner of a blockchain. It just wouldn't work. The uh, access to that, you know, the role of data center is permissioned, but it's permissioned by an open governance system that runs on top, on top of the network called the network nervous system. And I mean, that, those ideas have been sort of, I think I talked about them some years ago. I think it was originally called the blockchain nervous system, which everyone will laugh about. But, you know, that was it was it was proposed back in like I don't know, 2016, 2017. So that, you know, concept, uh, we're still running with that concept, you know, that you, where you have an open governance system sitting atop a permission network. And that's, you know, similar to how the Internet works. Um, the Internet has ICANN and then there's a part of ICANN called IANA. And for example, IANA will grant you an ASN number that allows you to run a BGP router. And you need to run a BGP router if you want to, you know, connect to multiple transit providers, say, and be an ISP or, you know, hosting center. So the difference is that, you know, the internet was obviously designed many years ago. It wasn't possible to create an algorithmic governance system. Um, whereas the internet computer is a much more recent thing and, and, and is a computing platform so it can have an onboard governance system. Can you explain how the Definity blockchain and the currency fits into the internet computer model? Well, again, you know, I'm not sure uh, blockchain is an accurate uh, description for the internet computer. There is, Or just the currency. You can just explain from the currency standpoint. Yeah, I'm not even sure currency is the right word. It's designed as a computing platform. Now, it is true that computation and storage involve gas. And there's a very simple reason for that. Uh, you have to mediate partition, participation and, and, and control of the network somehow. It's an open decentralized network. And there has to be some means for, for, for mediating participation and control. And um, 
you know, if, if there was no gas, for example, somebody could just upload s some software that just stores a never end, you know, ever increasing stream of random bytes and all of the capacity of the data centers would eventually be consumed. So you have to have some means of mediating participation and control. So we have gas. The difference is that we don't expect users of the internet computer to hold tokens, right? One of the great difficulties I think people had with some of these early experimental systems like Ethereum was that you know you could build you could build a you know a service like CryptoKitties, but then you had two problems. Firstly, only users that hold ETH tokens can use it. So they had to go to Coinbase or somewhere first to buy them. And then secondly, it's not really a decentralized service because actually there are some small contracts and then there's a website front end running on Amazon Web Services. So, you know, that, that kind of architecture doesn't work for our purposes. We want people to be able to build, um, say, open LinkedIn and for you know, users to be able to interact with open LinkedIn without acquiring any tokens. So there isn't, there isn't a cryptocurrency model. It is true, however, that in order to get gas, you need tokens. But for the most part, the software pays for its own gas. And we think that people will go via intermediaries to get tokens that are converted to gas. So typically, say, for example, you are a... Uh, enterprise user, and you had some kind of enterprise system running on the internet computer, you might just go to an intermediary, give them your uh, credit card and say, hey, put $100 worth of gas on my software. Here's the ID. You wouldn't go near tokens. So yes, you can see in the internet computer, you can see influences and history related to the whole blockchain movement, but it's a very different thing. So let's say I'm going to a web page that's hosted on the internet computer. Yeah. Presumably, I can go into my web browser and enter in the domain name, and I press enter, sure. and then that request propagates through, eventually, a stack that is different than the present-day computer. Can you walk me through the architecture? Like, how does that request propagate through the stack, and how does my web page eventually get sent to me? Well, f f first of all, the internet computer is integrated with um, DNS. I can't give the full details, but you can imagine that a domain name would be put in. It would resolve to some symmetric replica of your system, probably one that's near to you. And sort of default function calls would be uh, made by the bootloader to retrieve the components of the user you know, the UI, for example, it might be React, it might be fragments of HTML and JavaScript and so on. They'd come down together with uh, some cryptography that allowed the bootloader to verify that the um, user interface hadn't been tampered with. Um, the user interface would then start making REST calls to the internet computer, all of which, of course, would be done in a cryptographically secure way, although the user would have nothing to do with this. And there are two kinds of calls on the internet computer. One is an update call, which modifies the state of the, it's got a software canister. And that obviously has to be run across all the replicas. It's a symmetric replication system. So depending on the- Replicas of the web page or of the uh, website. Yeah, and all the software and data behind it. Okay. Yeah, it's completely self-contained. And 
Every application is completely self-contained. Yeah. Cool. Well, it doesn't have to be, but why not? I okay. Mean, probably, yeah, that's the best way of designing it. So, you know, the update call will be replicated across all the replicas in the subnetwork that hosts your canister or canisters. Mm. And that might take a little longer, sort of like one or two seconds, depending on the size of the subnetwork, possibly even as long as five seconds, but that'd be an outside case. And the other kind of call is a query call. And a query call doesn't modify the state, or at least the mod any modifications to the state it makes aren't persisted. And without getting into how this is done securely, this would typically be answered by a single replica and would happen obviously extremely fast. Faster even than happens today with con you know, legacy content distribution networks like Akamai because you've got symmetric replication. So let's think about a, an example. Let's think about an open Reddit, okay? So you type in some domain name. It's integrated with DNS. First of all, the components of the UX load, load into the browser in a way that allows the bootloader to verify that they haven't been tampered with because you need end-to-end -end security for this to be meaningful. And that's something that's missing from systems today, right? Where you have you know, things like blockchains and then websites hosted on Amazon Web Services. How do you even know you're, in, you're interacting with a blockchain? So the, you know, the, the UX loads into the browser and probably you've got an identity, which of course is a public key. And if you're previously, if you've previously, if you like signed up to open Reddit, um, possibly the homepage that's displayed to you is customized, right? Maybe it's like, you know, your own personal feed, which combines posts from different forums that you're interested in. And, you know, you might click on some of these forums to drill down or a post to read it. And all of this happens very much instantaneously because you're communicating with the nearest replica to you. And uh, this compares very well to today's model where, you know, Kamai can, uh, you know, they can, ca you know, you, you can pull like video files and other sort of, you know, images and so on and react fragments from the edge, right? From a server near to you. But if you want to actually interact with the source and get like a customized homepage or something, well, what Akamai will do is route you across across a network of pre-made connections to reduce the latency, but you still interact with the source server. So you know, if you're in London and the source server's in Tokyo, well, you still got 480 milliseconds of latency, right? But it's different here, of course, because now when you're getting your customized open Reddit forum listing, you're actually interacting with a local symmetric replica of all of the data and um, software. So you get better performance than today's internet built on sort of the you know, proprietary legacy stack. And, you know, then you might want to post something and that'll take a little bit longer because, you know, you've got the, that would involve an update call. So it has to be run across all the symmetric replicas in the internet computer subnetwork, which hosts the software. So, you know, you might post something and let's just say it takes two, you know, you see the little spinning wheel for two seconds, but big deal, right? What you really care about is that when you're browsing open Reddit, it's super snappy and we'll be able to do that better than people can today it's only when you actually want to update the data that it takes a little bit longer but you know we think that two seconds is reasonable and in the end people will prefer these kind of services not just because of the performance and things like that but because they're secure they they can be open and give them guarantees about how their data is processed and there are a whole bunch of other things the internet computer allows you to do which people there's just no way of doing today so for example you you can guarantee apis you can mark apis as permanent and when you've done that 
say as a creator of Open Reddit, not only will the internet computer prevent you from deleting that API when you upgrade the software, either as an individual or through a governance system, which would make it autonomous, it can also even reverse uh, degradations of API functionality. So this lays the groundwork for is a more sort of collaborative dynamic internet ecosystem where people can freely extend services, pre-existing services by relying on the API calls that give them access to you know, the user relationships and data. Um, and even if in the case that let's say Open Reddit 1 starts developing very slowly and everyone gets very dissatisfied, with the developers behind it, that you know a new team can come along and create Open Reddit two, and pull the data out of Open Reddit one. So we think that it's going to create much better network effects and a much more dynamic, creative, innovative internet ecosystem that progresses faster, and in the end, um, outcompetes today's monopolistic system. That's a great answer. So the canister model. This canister, if I understand correctly, is the abstraction that every application replica fits within? Yeah, so the computational unit used by the internet computer is called a canister. You can probably imagine why it's called a canister. It's a bundling of software and state, and the internet computer moves it around between subnetworks depending on, upon load and other things, you know, protocol-related needs. A canister doesn't have a, any files associated with it, with it as such, other than some sort of resource files that you might be using for the user experience. Um, the canister persists main memory. So uh, canisters, canisters introduce something called orthogonal persistence, where developers don't think about persistence at all, they just write their abstractions. So you could, for example, create a very simple social network by um, writing canister code akin to, you know, var people equals new dictionary angle bracket string for the username, comma, profile, closing angle bracket. And essentially, you know, the internet computer persists memory pages, and it's based around an actor model. So can you describe, like, maybe the the storage footprint or the memory footprint of, of a canister? I'm just trying to understand, like, how many canisters it would take to run my, you know, my blog or something, sure. like my podcast. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we want to get the internet computer out. And so the first version of the internet computer won't be as capable as subsequent versions. So at least from where we are now, the due to restrictions with the design of WebAssembly that are going to be lifted, currently a canister uh, will have a sort of, will only be able to store up to about four gig of memory. But that's a restriction we were working on solving very actively, and it, it won't be around that long. So that means if you wanted to create, you know, an internet scale system, such as you know, LinkedIn, say, you would need to use multiple canisters. Typically, you know, you'd, you'd use canisters as buckets for user data. So the two important points there. The first point is this limit on this, the amount of uh, memory that a canister has is going to be uh, lifted and, and they're going to have vastly more capacity soon. And secondly, anyways, if, if you want to create an internet scale system, you're always going to have to think about partitioning your data, right? But the canister model, and for example, the Motoko language, provides 
ways to make that much easier. So when one canister makes a call into another canister, that call is asynchronous, which means, you know, you'd sort of do in, in your code, you know, so some other canister dot function call, right? And then you'd write the handler and that handler would be, you know, it's like a callback, yeah. like a closure executed asynchronously. But for example, the Matoko language, which uh, we released uh, November 1st last year, uh, provides something called the async keyword that makes it possible to write direct sequential code within this asynchronous environment. So one of the challenges that uh, has existed historically is that it's very difficult to write sequential code that scales out. Well, you can't really. So Matoko introduces something akin to the async keyword in, you know, EC6 JavaScript, but it's more powerful, that makes it possible to write direct sequential code that can scale out. So um, creating a multi-canister project may not be as onerous as you might imagine. Let's say I just have a blog. Like, the blog has three posts, says one of them is hello world, one of them is my name is Jeff, and the third one is yeah. I, I like computers. What's the process of deploying that to a Definity canister? Well, I mean, that's obviously a very simple application. So you would create your canister software. Let's say you wrote it in Matoko. This canister would share some functions. You would permission those functions appropriately. You would mark them as either query functions which don't modify the state or update functions that do modify the state. Um, you would create these resource files that implement the UX, which are actually accessed via default function calls. I believe in the current implementation, those resource files are actually kept in main memory. See, that, see if that's, I'm not sure whether that's going to stay the same, but that's the current way it works. You would uh, test and develop your blog canister locally. And when you were happy with it, you'd push it to the internet computer. And you would, uh, this, this canister would, would have an identity, which is a public key. You would hold the corresponding private key. Um, and using that private key, you could, you know, update that canister in place. And something you may have noticed I haven't mentioned is uh, there's, there's a complexity relating to, you know, the heap becoming incompatible with the new software. So what, the, the technical difficulty with orthogonal persistence is that you need to transform the heap, migrate the heap when you upgrade the software. So Motoko actually has language extensions that make that possible. So it sort of does it for you in a type-safe way. But there are other models. So the Rust SDK will do it its own way. Um, the internet computer itself, you know, defines the canister framework at quite a low level. You know, it's, you've got some software, um, you've got some low-level you know, low API calls that the runtime can make to call into other canisters, and you've got some WASM linear memory. You can imagine soon it'll be multiple memories and so on to break past this, move past this, memory limit and can you help me understand once my blog is deployed to the to the internet computer when do gas payments come in when are like am i going to need to pay gas do other people pay gas where and where does that gas go so, so some of these details can't talk about fully right now but generally speaking i i, I don't believe it's 
possible to design a system like this without gas because otherwise there's always some sure. security vulnerability. People ultimately have to pay for the computation Great. that's consumed and there can't be any um, you know, loopholes. But typically you yourself would charge it with gas, maybe not directly through, inter through an intermediary. And that gas would be consumed by query calls, which also include you know, serving the uh, UX and update calls. There are mechanisms in place that make it defend against a gas exhaustion attack. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So I can I can host my. I mean, it's just like I'm paying for a web hosting provider instead. I'm just paying. Gas yeah, this, to... it's, exactly. It's more akin to the traditional model, um, except obviously done in a way that allows this to work securely in a public network. Right. And okay, so there's some... So, yeah, with an, with an enterprise system, obviously, it's more straightforward. You can imagine if your blog was only for consumption within a company, well, the systems administrator could permission that blog appropriately. So only people within your company would be able to use it and consume the gas. You need to do some different things for a public internet service. And that's... Yeah, well, Probably, probably won't go into the details of that right now. But I mean, a lot of this stuff's gonna gonna be pushed out, you know, imminently this year. And what are the security guarantees once I deploy my blog to Definity, and how are those security guarantees manifested? Well, assuming that the blog is running on a subnetwork with a sufficient level of replication, and bear in mind, replication has two purposes. One is to deliver security, and another is potentially to scale out query calls. So, for example, if you created open Netflix, very likely, as it became more popular, the sub-network would scale out the number of symmetric replicas so it could increase the streaming capacity of the system. But you know, the other purpose is uh, security. So let's imagine that it had a replication factor of 28. It uses uh, traditional Byzantine fault-tolerant science or a bit new science, but, you know, uses the, has the same kind of fault bounds. So it could withstand nine of those becoming faulty, and it will continue without a hitch. And the way the internet computer works, the replicas in that subnetwork hosting your blog would be independent data centers. So by default, and there are lots of possible configurations, right? By default, you'd have 28 replicas in 28 different data centers. So the system could withstand nine of those data centers becoming faulty. I, Kim Jong-un, could take control of the data centers, you know, kidnap the owner's children or something, I don't know, <laughs> and, and, and your blog will continue working without a hitch. So, I mean, that obviously provides an absolutely, absolutely extraordinary level of security. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we you know, use this architecture. We need to get guaranteed decentralization to get the kind of security properties that we want. And that's one of the, um, I, I, mean, I hate making comparisons with blockchain projects because it's really something very different. But one of the great problems with blockchain projects is that you don't really know, especially with proof of work, who's running these replicas. And the, there's no control. So you know, like five big mining pools controlling the Bitcoin network. I and mean, that's just not secure. And a similar thing happens with Ethereum. I mean, you've got sort of Genesis mining and so on. And anyways, a rather insecure P2P network. Everything goes through these sort of super nodes run by the foundation. So we, you know, we, this, the internet computers are a very long way from that. You know, hmm. We provide not only, you know, we're trying to compete with the traditional stack, but we're providing security that's better than traditional blockchain. So, if I understand correctly, 
the subnets, the people who are doing the hosting on those subnets, are they randomly selected? Is that how you can insure against... No, so the... Because just, just to say what I'm thinking, like it seems like if you only had 28 replicas and... I mean, that's much easier for somebody to kind of gain control of, of your network relative to something like the, you know, if we're talking about you need to be one of these gigantic mining pools. Well, if you have all these subnets and, you know, you can log on to somebody's subnet and take control of it. Or so, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to understand, like... I mean, look, in the past, I think some of these Bitcoin mining pools have edged towards 51%. Right. When you, whenever you have such a small number of individuals, especially individuals that whose identity is maybe somewhat opaque and who have rather strange economic incentives. Yeah, sure, look, I mean, the Chinese government could take over Bitcoin any day it likes. You just have to um, nobble a few mining pool operators. So I, I don't, you know, the security of a system, a decentralized system, is derived not only from the number of independent participants, mm-hmm. but the provable independence right. of those participants. Right, right, right. And the control of the independence of right. those participants. Uh-huh. And that's why we lean more to, towards the internet model, where we have an open governance system called the network nervous system, which effectively permissions blockchains. Sorry, <laughs> permissions data ah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, Freudian slip. Permissions data centers. And you can apply to the network nervous system as a data center. You can get a data center ID. And if you're granted a data center ID through the application process, you can then make uh, nodes which have set specifications available to the network. But the network nervous system only inducts individual nodes into the main network as it needs them. So, you know, if the network nervous system decides that it needs a new subnetwork, at that point, it can look at the pool of available nodes in data centers and combine them to produce a new subnetwork according to the, the the appropriate specification. Now, there are many possible specifications. Obviously, a default specification is you have, say, 28 replicas in 28 different data centers, and that provides you with a very um, high level of security. But you might want to have more replicas, say, to create a video streaming, to host a video streaming canister, something like Open Netflix. And you might also want to concentrate, have more replicas in different regions, depending upon the user profile. You know, if if 80% of your streaming, you know, 80% of the users of the open Netflix are in the US, then there's probably going to be a preponderance of US data centers, right? Which produces a lower level of security than if you'd selected your data centers, selected replicas from data centers in different jurisdictions and different geographies. To go back to my blog example, if I'm deploying my blog, do I have to choose which data centers my blog is getting deployed to? Like, how no. do I? You, you, no, so for you as a user or a developer, the internet computer is just the internet computer. Currently, at least, this may change in the future. You're not even able to hint where you think the users are. The network nervous system will observe hmm. usage and make its own adjustments. Hmm. It might be that one day that the developer has some ability to influence this, but currently it's the network itself, the protocol itself, determines where the replicas should be. But by default, it will you know, uh, select them for security. Hmm. So just to make sure I understand it right, I deploy my blog with some amount of gas... The gas is dedicated to being able to pay for the serving of requests by users. 
Which either query calls or update calls. Either query calls yeah. or update calls. Uh, and update calls are much more expensive because they have to be executed across all of the replicas and actually modify the state. And let's say an update happens, like a user makes a comment on my blog. Can you walk me through how the hosting providers of my blog at that point are getting paid? Like how much gas they get and how that gas gets transferred to them? So yeah, this is another area in which it works differently to a blockchain, say. So there's an economic system, but it's managed by the governance system. So your canister uh, is charged with gas that gets consumed by uh, you know, updating query calls. Presumably, either you're just paying for that because you've got some other kind of revenue stream or, or maybe you're deriving income from advertising. And the tokens, Definity tokens that were used to create that gas are effectively burned. Uh, the gas is burned, right? And so in that sense, the tokens that were used to create the gas are, are also burned. So it could, you know, if there wasn't anything else going on, um, you know, obviously the system would be that the tokens would, would deflate. But we need to remunerate data centers. Now, remember, this isn't a blockchain. It's not a cryptocurrency. There's no, uh, we're not asking miners to speculate on the future value of the tokens. It needs to be a very stable business. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a stable network. So the governance system determines what, the, what returns data centers should receive. And based upon the current value of the um, token and other considerations, it's trying to pay them some amount in real terms. Okay, so uh, obviously you've got some kind of economic system where users are buying tokens, of, usually not directly through an intermediary, in order to charge their software with gas. And um, tokens are being issued to data centers who can choose if they want to. Mm. I mean, they can speculate if they want to, but if they, they can also you know, sell them on the exchange to receive revenues. And it may well be that they sell them through an intermediary too because they want, they want to get rid of volatility risks. Embedded analytics is the way to add dashboards to your application. Are the dashboards that are in your application engaging your end users or are they falling flat? According to analyst firm Gartner, the UX of embedded analytics has a direct impact on how end users perceive your application. Fortunately, you don't have to be a UI UX designer to build impressive dashboards and reports. Logi Analytics has come up with six steps that will transform the user experience of your embedded analytics. Logi Analytics is the leading development platform for embedded dashboards and reports. And unlike other solutions, Logi gives you complete control to create your own unique analytics experience. Visit logianalytics.com slash sedaily to access six basic principles that will transform your dashboards. That's logianalytics.com slash sedaily. That's L-O-G-I analytics.com slash sedaily. I'm starting to see why you don't like the comparison to a blockchain because there are some ideas borrowed from blockchain, but one thing I'm thinking about as you're talking is like there are a lot of 
efforts being made in quote-unquote edge computing right now. And you see a lot more computation moving to the quote-unquote edge. And it's really raising the question of what is the purpose of edge computing? People are moving storage to the edge. People have computation at the edge. What is, is there really anything special about these edge servers? Like, no, they're just servers. Like, you just got more data centers. So if you have all these data centers everywhere and they're capable of both storage and computation, it's like we're attached to the idea of a CDN being the edge idea of an edge data center and all the CDN can do is just give you, serve you dumb images and videos and stuff, but actually it can be a fully fledged server. So if that's the case, why don't we just deploy our entire application to the, to the edge, especially since packaging those applications has gotten de minimis with things like Docker or WebAssembly. Yeah. My view is the whole thing's messed up. Look, back in the day when I was a kid, I remember getting a computer with 128 kilobytes of RAM and being blown away. Like, how could I have a computer with 128 kilobytes of RAM? It was a Sinclair, Sinclair Research Spectrum. But now, you know, the latest 16-inch MacBook has 30 gig of RAM. So the amount of RAM on this personal computer has increased 25,000 times. You know, I remember having a 9,600 board modem and thinking I was the boss when I got my 14.4K modem. The hardware landscape and the network landscape has changed unimaginably in the last decades. Yet, the software stack that we use really evolved organically from these very humble beginnings. And no one's ever asked the question, have we gone down the sort of wrong evolutionary branch? I mean, look, Think about this in extremis. Imagine that, you know, we could fit all of humanity's data into a storage device the size of a Coke can. Clearly, the concern would be how to replicate humanity's data across lots of Coke cans and to introduce security that would ensure that modifications to the data and replications were properly propagated, right? You know, a lot of the systems we use today are designed to minimize the hardware footprint. But, and it's, and it's true, the internet computer, we use a lot of advanced computer science, you know, moon math, cryptography, everything. And, and of course, we also replicate computation and data. But, you know, hardware isn't where the costs are today. The costs are in the impact of being a captive customer of all these vendors in the legacy stack. The costs are in being unable to make your system secure. I mean, look at Equifax when it got hacked. It lost $2.5 billion on its um, market cap, and they had to pay, I think, $700 million or something in compensation to, to their users. And that's just the start, because hackers are moving to ransomware now. Like, you know, they encrypted all of the city of Baltimore servers, and they're realizing they can get far more money by ransomwareing, you know, encrypting all your servers with ransomware and getting the Bitcoin than they can selling user data on the dark net because it's, it's been done so many times. So, you know, that's a cost. And also, you know, if you look at, like, say, a fortune, typical Fortune 500 company, um, 85% of the costs are IT operations, people, even with all the licensing and waste, waste you know, unutil- underutilized hardware and all the rest of it. Still, 85% of the costs are IT operations. And then if you look into that, you'll see that like 90% plus of that cost is, is related to the complexity uh, of this legacy stack. Um, the way we have to, you know, assemble, you know, create, form systems from assemblies of all these complex components, like, oh, I'm going to choose my database vendor, I'm going to choose my 
software stack. I'm going to choose my middle one, all this stuff. And, you know, you make this kind of Rube Goldberg machine that's completely unstable. And you know, then you have all these people tinkering with it, like Chernobyl. Um, and then, you know, because you can't possibly make that thing secure, you sort of surround it with a firewall, right? And that still doesn't work because, you know, if you haven't patched one of those bits of software inside the firewall, people can jump over it and it's a constant battle. If you're a CEO, you know that just one person in your IT administration team or security team can make a single configuration error and the hacker's going to jump over the firewall. It's a constant race uh, against time. And, and, and the, the business model of this thing is complexity. So, you know, if you're a CIO and you're having sleepless nights, uh, you can talk to Palo Alto Networks and they'll say, look, you know, we'll sell you a new firewall. And this new firewall has got big data and AI built in, right? And this AI is going to watch your network for anomalies and send out the white blood cells to neutralize the attack when it's detected. I mean, it's all bullshit, right? And most people working in IT have no sense of the fact they're just meeting this gigantic sausage machine where you've got a system that's evolved and the design is no longer cognizant, coherent, given the, today's hardware and network landscape. And moreover, that this whole sort of stack has also been, the, the organic evolution has also been driven by the commercial incentives of the vendors to create captive customers. I mean, the whole thing's a mess. And that's why, you know, not here in Silicon Valley, but, you know, if you go into the bowels of a lot of corporations and you talk to the IT guys there, oftentimes they're pretty unhappy because all they want to do is a good job and create systems that provide a good user experience and deliver the systems they've been asked to build on time or, you know, make the modifications required quickly. And they just can't do it. They're just constantly battling this complexity. And it creates a lot of, makes a lot of people miserable. Obviously, if you're in security, you're super miserable. Like security's got the highest turnover in IT because you realize that, um, you know, you're on a losing wicket. You're not going to be able to make these systems secure no matter what you do. And you're going to get the blame for it, even if it's not your fault, you know. Very cool and impressive. And we're almost out of time. And I want to let you get back to building the internet computer. Last question, and I'd love to do more shows on this subject, so maybe um, if one of your engineers want to come on the show or something, can you give me a sense of the timeline? Like, I know there's a lot of technical bottlenecks and a lot of moving parts, but just, I don't know, give me a couple minutes of pontificating on what is really hard that you're working on right now and what your estimation of the timeline is with any kind of caveats you want to add. Well, we've been, you know, battling our way through uh, lots of challenges. Obviously, building it is one challenge. And the good news there is that, you know, the design is stable and we're on uh, the final build branches that will actually make it into production with the MVP. And that's why we started pushing stuff into the public domain. You know, when we pushed Matoko and the SDK out in November, it was, you know, early alpha. There's been 10 releases since then. Um, the reason we started pushing we push that out is because um, that's going to make it into the, if we call it a production system, the first publicly available uh, internet computer release. And we're sort of progressing with releasing other things. And, you know, eventually before it goes live, um, we're going to dump all of the technical documentation. There'll be thousands of pages of it. And we're hoping to make the internet computer available to the public uh, sort of Q3, Q4. This, this year? This year, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, but that's, it's taken a long time. There's been a lot of work involved. And it's not just the sort of theory work and the software implementation work. We've also had to build an organization capable of implementing 
such a complex thing and supporting it. You know, if the people, are, if the world's going to have faith in the internet computer, they're going to need to know that there's a pretty strong ecosystem of organizations and a lot of uh, scientific and engineering talent behind it. And so we've been, you know, building that out. And, you know, that in itself actually is a challenge. Um, I mean, a lot of my time is spent doing, uh, you know, theory and engineering work, but, but, but probably an even greater amount of time has been spent, you know, scaling out the, the, the org. And, you know, we have a number of sort of like world famous people working on the I noticed. project now. Yeah. And, and everyone's inspired by this because, you know, it's, it's, it's 50 years since ARPANET first allowed to computers to communicate sort of end of 1969 37 years since sort of 400 computers um, on ARPANET upgraded their protocols to TCP IP and formed the internet on the 1st of January 1983 so you know we feel sort of timing's auspicious you know for this sort of next evolution and the world really needs this right like the legacy stack is absolutely broken it's awful and people need a better way of building systems and internet services. With respect to internet services, the world also needs a way to break this big tech nightmare. Like when the internet first sort of entered mainstream use in the 1990s, it sort of triggered this explosion of innovation and creativity because it was an open permissionless system, right? The problem is now that, you know, big tech has managed to sort of Corral user relationships and data. And, uh, you know, if you want to build a new system, really you have to build on their APIs. That's building on sand, as Facebook showed first famously, right? When Zinger built all the social games on its APIs and IPO'd and, you know, and Facebook changed the rules, changed the APIs. And a few months later, it had lost 85% of its value, even though it's a public company. A few years later, you know, LinkedIn uh, had thousands of startups drawing professional profiles through its sort of programmable web APIs. And then it just re pretty much revoked everyone's APIs and wrecked everybody. And now if you go to a VC and say, look, I want to build this really interesting new service, but it's going to have to build on top of these APIs provided by big tech, they'll mm. laugh at you because of the platform risk, right? right? right, right. And this has meant that the internet has lost its dynamism. It's really sad. So the secret of Silicon Valley has always been that really it's about building monopolies. Like you try and leverage, be super smart and aggressive and leverage first mover advantage and capital you can get from the VCs here to corner a market. Um, and that could be anything from, you know, LinkedIn through Salesforce, through WhatsApp, through you know, pretty much any Airbnb, any, anything you care to mention. And then, you know, if, if you can establish a monopoly and corner the market, the network effects of having all of those, all of that user data and all those user relationships inside your system allow you to mint money pretty much not forever, but for a very long time. I mean, look at eBay, right? I mean, no one would say that eBay is um, the most fantastic, innovative company, but they, they had first mover advantage with their online auction. They got the network effects and only now Amazon's beginning to take chunks out of them. You know, the bigger monopoly is, <laughs> the, the mega monopoly is beginning to swallow the smaller ones. Now, there is no way of competing with that using the legacy tech stack. Like if you're an entrepreneur, you know, a young entrepreneur or a developer today, um, you're locked out of this world, right? 
we've gone from, it's almost like we've gone back, you know, in the mid 1990s, we had this battle between the open internet and closed systems. Microsoft wanted to create the information superhighway. We had AOL, we had CompuServe, and the internet won because it was open and permissionless. But today, you know, big tech has corralled all these user relationships and all this data and sort of taken us back to this hideous sort of walled garden model where the whole internet is controlled by a few massive corporations. Um, there is no way using the legacy stack that you can compete with this. There's no way you can build a system, you know, that, that uses Facebook's APIs and builds on Amazon. You're going to take this on. The internet computer can allow you to take on big tech and to create new systems that can succeed. And it does this by providing completely new properties you can lean on. You can build open internet services that are autonomous, um, you know, that they're, they're updated and controlled by an open governance system that provide certain guarantees to their users. But most importantly, they have better network effects. Network effects are what enable you to win in tech. And if you create an open internet service, you can guarantee APIs. So you can create, for example, an open version of LinkedIn that guarantees APIs, that you know, provides an API where someone can put in a username and get back the professional profile associated with that username. And you can guarantee that that you know, API will never disappear and it'll never be degraded. It won't just start returning you know, the, the, the professional profile of Joe Bloggs, whatever username you put in, and it'll always work. And that means that you know, other people can build on top of your APIs and extend the functionality. So you get kind of mutualized network effects, much greater dynamism. And that's how we want to sort of bust apart this big tech nightmare and sort of return the internet to its more open, dynamic, creative, innovative roots. So, you know, we're doing uh, this demo of the, there's um, a milestone called Bronze in Davos, Switzerland, two weeks. And as part of the network demonstration, we're showing an open kind of professional profile network that I think a couple of engineers have cooked up in a couple of weeks, that's not quite true, three weeks. And we'll be demonstrating this. And people forget, you know, it's all part of the mythology of, of the Valley. Like, oh, you know, those engineers behind LinkedIn is a work of genius. And you've got Reid Hoffman, you know, writing the blitz scaling book and so on. Look, it's nothing to do with the engineering is to do with capturing these relationships and data and then securing the network effects. Most uh, talented high schoolers could knock up a LinkedIn themselves in, in a couple of months. And they crawled your address book. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we want to um, enable a different kind of internet where it's not all about finding a way to uh, sort of hijack user data and relationships by through first mover advantage and then sort of holding it securely so nobody can compete with you. We want to create an internet where... That's the currency, if you like, is, you know, the dynamism and your ability to collaborate and build out with other developers and thereby achieving far, far greater network effects and producing in the end much, much more interesting services and a much, much more interesting ecosystem for people to use. So the internet computer is much more than an alternative stack. It's also a vision for an alternative world. Don Williams, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. As businesses become more integrated with their software than ever before, it has become possible to understand the business more clearly through monitoring, logging, and advanced data visibility. Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform that builds tools for operations, security, and cloud-native infrastructure. 
The company has studied thousands of businesses to get an understanding of modern continuous intelligence and then compiled that information into the Continuous Intelligence Report, which is available at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic. The sumologic Continuous Intelligence Report contains statistics about the modern world of infrastructure. Here are some statistics I found particularly useful. 64% of the businesses in the survey were entirely on Amazon Web Services, which was vastly more than any other cloud provider or multi-cloud or on-prem deployment. That's a lot of infrastructure on AWS. Another factoid I found was that a typical enterprise uses 15 AWS services, and one in three enterprises uses AWS Lambda. It appears serverless is catching on. There are lots of other fascinating statistics in the Continuous Intelligence Report, including information on database adoption, Kubernetes, and web server popularity. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic and download the Continuous Intelligence Report today. Thank you to Sumo Logic for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.